Bessings, thank you so much. What a beautiful way to share together today. And uh, just uh, reminds us all, I can't help think as listening to Bethany and Anthony sing, just how much, um, even as we pray for our country, how much this uh, resonates. What a great song, what a great truth. Well, for our boys and girls in Pathfinders and Explorers, we have a little unusual setup because of uh, Boiler not doing what it's supposed to down the hall. So a class is going to be held right up here with uh, Miss with our Explorers uh, class. And then our Pathfinders are going back to their Pathfinders classroom here as they have uh, uh, in the past. It's been actually almost two years. A tiny bit. Hey, everybody. <laughs> um, it's been al almost two years now since that uh, uh, Gospel Project curriculum was in place, and this is a first step here today back to the beginning of that, and a nice little warm, cozy room for the explorers. I think they'll be really grateful for that <laughs> up there. Uh, so we'll be having their other space, hopefully get some good service on that before next week. So we welcome each of you as as we gather together today to to launch into something that I pray would be practical and encouraging for everyone, uh, particularly in this in the we might say in the the center of winter right here in the place where uh, where the maximum amount of, of, of cold and and uh, um, empty branches on trees and uh, barrenness a sense of cold barrenness is out there. Well, it's a reminder as the Bible begins that in the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth that um, the Spirit of God hovered over the waters, the earth was without form and void, and then God said. So that whole principle of God's voice, God's truth, God's word speaking into that barrenness is something that we can apply. It's, it's far less profound, of course, but we can apply it personally and realize that uh, even the New Testament refers to this, this factor of God's voice speaking into the void or into that place of need profoundly in the gospel. And it speaks of that in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, when the Bible says that God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That's a truth that we can take to heart as we talk today about a very practical principle in the Christian life. I call this smart goals for bold believers because I am deeply impressed as I wrestle, as of course, Everyone in one way or another wrestles with the question of your goals at the beginning of a new year, of resetting your goals, of looking at um, what, um, what you want to accomplish in the course of a coming year, but also looking at that, um, as we'll see, in the light of the way the Scripture describes the call of Christ on every believer's life. And what we want to begin with is a quick review. Everyone knows at the beginning of a new year, 
even in the middle of January as that beginning is getting started in your life. Everybody knows that there are times when um, your, your best intentions seem to fall to the ground. And you start something and you launch into it. You're quite sure that's where you want to go, but all of a sudden you find yourself not where you intended to be. And what I believe is the most helpful thing for getting a handle on new goals and a new beginning in life is to go directly to the Bible, to go directly to Scripture. So first what I want to do today, and I need to make a couple of changes here so I can see well, First, what I want to do today is to address it um, in, in the beginning with a review of what we talked about uh, beginning two weeks ago. We looked at a wonderful principle in Scripture that, that I call tackling our todays. Tackling our todays. And you might want to open your Bible back up to that third chapter of Hebrews. We looked at a piece of it two weeks ago. We uh, looked at another piece of it last Sunday when I was um, sharing with you from my living room, and Becky and I were blessed to have Joe and Sylvia with us there uh, for morning church at our living room last Sunday. But also today, I want to revisit it. I want to ask you to quickly review this key part of Hebrews 3. And just say it aloud with me because it, uh, it really helps if it's in your own voice many times. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. The key word, as we saw two Sundays ago, is today. Today is a pivotal word. It occurs five times in the two chapters, chapter 3 and 4 of Hebrews. And in all of those five occurrences of today, the, the writer of this epistle is reaching back into a very profound um, combination psalm it is a psalm that begins on the jubilant note of doing what we did this morning in praising God and seeking to overcome all the distractions around us by recognizing the supremacy of who our God is calls for our highest praise. But Psalm 95 is unusual among these jubilant um, uh, tabernacle-themed praise songs in that, in the very middle of this brief psalm, it breaks off into a stern warning. It says, come let us sing to the Lord, let us rejoice, make a joyful noise to the God of our salvation. And then it turns in verse 7 to this warning. Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. Now again, your Bible open is, I trust, at the third chapter of Hebrews in the New Testament. So you'll look at that in Hebrews 3. And notice there in that uh, 13th verse, in the, or the 7th verse and following, the 7th through the 10th verse, that Hebrews 3 lifts this paragraph out of Psalm 95, the warning paragraph, the stern warning, listen to God today. Let's update the language and put it this way. Today is the day to hear God. Today is... And it wouldn't say that if you couldn't hear God today, would it? God is giving us in Psalm 95 this stern warning that every human being is subject to losing touch with the immediacy of the voice of God. 
What did we hear from 2 Corinthians 4, 6? God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness. That's that profound, eternal, creative splendor of Almighty God all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And yet the New Testament applies it to the individual heart in a very practical and personal way. God's voice, the word of God in the gospel, the word of our God in the good news of Jesus Christ brings an immediacy, a present tense application that you can take to your heart so that by the time you get to Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7 through 12, you have yourself looking at what we might come to understand is a fulfilled warning. The warning in Psalm 95 was of a future day when you'd hear his voice and the temptation would be to grow dull of hearing, but the opportunity God promises is you can keep a fresh, vibrant vitality in your hearing God. Well, we might say, oh, how do I do that? How can I be sure of that? Well, again, Hebrews, would you stay with me in this little review? Go over to chapter 4 and look at the 12th verse of chapter 4 of Hebrews, and you see as you look at that, that in Hebrews 4.12, the Bible does something quite intriguing in light of what I I hope we'll see in these three weeks about bold believers. This is the heart of why we're talking today about what it means to be bold. And that is, we can never have the boldness, the tenacity, the courage, the energetic response to God that we all need if we depend on human power. If we depend on our willpower to overcome our hindrances, if we depend on human wisdom, if we depend on human strength. Now, we all have that. It's not bad. God gave us human wisdom and strength to use in practical ways. But ultimately, our motivation as followers of Jesus will come from a higher source. And that motivation is in Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. In this wonderful expression about the Word of God, notice what it says, that Hebrews 4, 12 gives us an illustration of the Word of God that we should liken today to surgical instruments. Now think about it, and let's read it together. For the Word of God is alive and active. The King James Bible translates it alive and powerful. Many modern translations will say alive and active. It is Now think about it first. It's actively working. And what is very striking here is that the writer of the epistle to the Hebrews zeroes in on exactly what we're aiming at today to think about how to be bold. God's word comes to you in a present tense. But it doesn't come to you without a total package of truth. Now the reason I say that is we all know the silly jokes about people who take Bible verses out of context. You know, you heard of the, you heard of the guy who was going to play that Bible game where you open the Bible and let your eyes fall on a verse and see if, if God's giving you an answer from that Bible verse. And so he played that game, he opened the Bible and his finger fell on the place where it said um, um, Judas went out and hung himself. And so he said, well, I don't think that's the verse I need today. So he closed it up and he opened it up, put his finger on another one. And that verse said, go and do thou likewise. <laughs> so, you know, this, we've all heard those silly jokes. Well, the joke itself is trivial, but the problem is real. 
in that we, we think we just want a little piece of God. We want a little piece of Bible. <laughs> we want something that, uh, that, that is, well, to put it in the words of, uh, of 1 Timothy chapter 4, tickles the ear. But God's word, again, keep your eyes riveted here on Hebrews 4.12, because I'd like you to see this. God's word comes to us in a totality. God's word comes to us complete. Of course, the ultimate expression of that is the Lord himself, the word of God made flesh. And when Hebrews 4.12 speaks of the word of God coming to us, it uses an example of surgical instruments. What does it say? It's like a double-edged sword piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and is a discerner of the heart, a discerner of the inner being, insomuch that the illustration centers on a medical phenomenon that medical science didn't fully understand until the 20th century. And that is the role of the marrow in the bones of the human body. Look at Hebrews 4.12 and notice this is a way, 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 way ahead of time illustration from God about how the designer of the human body signals here that marrow in the bone is, is a part of health, healthy bones. It says, division of soul and of spirit of both joints and marrow. Look at the end of verse 12, able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So here's the illustration. It's like something that only in the wisdom of God was known 2,000 years ago, that the marrow in the bone is a key to health. So we can now understand that this very visual example from the human body is designed to show us a greater truth. What's the greater truth? The end of verse 12 of Hebrews 4 says that the word of God, this active living word of God, is able to discern the deep intentions of your heart and mine. Now take the verse as a whole and think of it like this. On any given day, you and I can say, the word of God in my life, as I read it, as I hear it, as I speak it, as I reflect upon the word of God, even places in the Bible that seem very obscure to us um, in that we don't fully understand the whole content, God uses his word to help our hearts be ready to receive the immediate guidance that we need to make wise decisions. I'm simply saying what we could say in different words is, let the Bible be your friend. Spend time in the Bible, even in those unfamiliar places. Becky and I were getting a couple of laughs at home because in her Bible reading, she was going through Chronicles this last several days. And she got in those long list of names and um, she was plowing through that. And in the midst of that, the Lord gave her some insights into some names. Uh, she'd stop me and say, hey, did, did you know this about Jehoiada, about Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada? And we stopped and talked about it a little bit. And uh, she amazes me every time she comes out with all those things. But you see, there are parts of Scripture that look boring to us. And yet God, in the, in the total package of the Bible, God has brought us far more than we realize flashpoints of insight that the Holy Spirit will bring to our lives. So the review that I think is so important is to understand that all of us will at times find ourselves a little bit 
bogged down, and we might even find ourselves, um, you know, we might find ourselves like frustrated that some uh, important goal that we had at some point in our life is, has, come, uh, has come apart, and that's why I wanted to reach back for another review today. I'm going to reach back two years. Uh, usually, I don't, I've never done this before, but you know, most pastors, if you review, you might do last Sunday. I want to review two years ago, because two years ago, talked to you about the difference in destination and destiny. And, and, and it struck me as I was looking at boldness that um, this is a fitting and vital background for this because essentially what the scripture tells us in Hebrews 4.12 is that God's word discerns the inner parts of our hearts and the next verse says, nothing is hidden before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So God is the one who knows what you need to reach your ultimate destiny. Now, the destiny speaks of that which is part of what only Christ can do. Ephesians 1.6 says that we have been destined to the praise and the glory of his grace because we've been accepted in the beloved. And part of that destiny is that in Christ you have redemption from your sins through his precious blood, and you can count on that forgiveness. And all that God has planned for you, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, Romans 8, 29, for example. In uh, Hebrews 12, 2, that Jesus is the author and the completer of our faith. So we run our race with perseverance because he has guaranteed the completion in his glory. So all of those things are part of God's plan, but destination has to do with choices that we make. It has to, make, to do with goals that we set. And sometimes those goals can bring us to a place or we can find ourselves in a place of frustration. Somebody started a diet and they might find themselves in the midst of what uh, one writer a few years ago labeled the stress diet. I love the stress diet. I love to even hear it again. It just reminds me of some failed diets in my life. In the stress diet, at breakfast, you have a half a grapefruit, one piece of whole wheat toast, eight ounces of skim milk. That's the diet, right? But at lunch, you have four ounce lean broiled chicken breast, you have one cup steamed zucchini, one Oreo cookie, and herb tea. Still on the stress diet. Mid-afternoon snack, the rest of the package of Oreo cookies, one quart Rocky Road ice cream, one jar hot fudge. <laughs> And at dinner, two loaves of garlic bread, large mushroom and pepperoni pizza, larger pitcher of root beer, three Milky Ways, entire frozen cheesecake eaten directly from the freezer. That's the stress diet. Well, I hope uh, if you've ever had a, a, a failed diet, you know exactly uh, what that writer was getting at. Uh, it may not happen all in one day, but uh, whenever there's been a, a, you know, a, a kind of a collapse of a goal in your life, it's so, so good to be reminded in Scripture what Scripture says about the way that we can develop our own goals in light of the destiny that God has for us. And, it, and it's exactly why we look at Hebrews 4.12 in this light, that to get this revitalized goal-setting agenda in your life, no matter how many times, you may have been down this road either for a physical thing, a nutritional thing like that, or something even more um, long-term in your life, uh, uh, an academic goal, a financial goal, a um, vocational goal. 
all of us have goals and we, we need wisdom at the beginning of a new year to kind of reevaluate that. And um, one of the great resources here is to realize that your faith will be revitalized as you realize that the Word of God is, as the text says, living and active. So that means that there's a, there's a kind of a joining of purpose between your daily devotional time with God and the practical goals for which you want to chart a course. And that joining together is at this point. God, Hebrews 4.12 says your word is living and It's like compared both to a sword, a military image, but also to a scalpel, a surgical instrument. Because it has, the word of God has the fine-tuned capacity to get into those inner recesses of our hearts that we don't fully understand. Why would somebody find themselves in deep despair or depression over a broken goal? Probably, at some point, we haven't understood ourselves very well. At some point, we've made an assumption about ourselves that was wrong. Oh, I can do this, and maybe we can for three weeks, but then we blow it. Or um, we make an assumption that, um, that, that achieving a goal is going to do something for us that ultimately when we achieve the goal, we still feel dissatisfied because that goal in itself is void of power to bring fulfillment. It's only a part of a larger picture. So when the Bible looks at a disciple's life, a follower of Jesus, we can begin at that Hebrews 4.12 by realizing that the word of God is your companion in goal setting. And in light of that, then we can begin to see that setting a goal for the glory of God puts us in league with others who have trod this path, so to speak. That is, God's word shows us in ways that are far more compelling than any human discovery could make it, that you first are not alone in your, in your need for God's grace in your goals, but secondly, individuals who are clearly models of the disciples' life, like the Apostle Paul, are living object lessons. Their lives are object lessons of, of the fact that there is a common need in the human heart and it is something familiar across the globe and is familiar in every culture but the gospel brings a power source and a clarity to this that is really profound. The gospel brings a clarity as it did for the Apostle Paul. Now, Paul uses an illustration, I think that, of course, we can all understand and appreciate very well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, of a runner. And his illustration is, would have been familiar to the readers of the Epistle to the Corinthians. If you turn to that ninth chapter of 1 Corinthians and you look at verse 23, you'll see that Paul is talking about the total challenge of his calling as a carrier of the gospel. The entire chapter, in fact, deals with uh, some of the unique challenges that 
that faced Paul in his circumstances. And when he wraps it all up, he goes to this illustration of the Olympic Games. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 23, he begins to make a comparison that helps us realize why the Word of God is your most, let me say, your highest priority resource. Not the only one, but the Word of God is the first place to begin in beginning to say, how could I recast my goals? How could I, how could I re-envision my future? How could I deal with either a long-term goal or a short-term goal? If I'm a follower of Jesus, I have to approach this differently than the secular world. I, I can't just depend upon the common uh, psychological games that we play with ourselves. So Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 9.23. Do you see this in your Bible? This is quite interesting. It lines up with exactly why the Word of God is so vital to this. Paul says it like this. I do all of this for the sake of the gospel. He wanted a clearly defined goal and an action plan. And he began by saying, everything in my life revolves around the goal that others will hear the good news of Jesus Christ, and it is for the sake of the gospel that I pursue my goals. Now, for each of us, we may put a different kind of a shade on that, in that um, you need goals in your career, you need goals in your vocation, you need academic goals. And you might say, well, it's for the gospel in one way, but it's also for my academic advancement, or it's for my financial future. And that's valid. The scripture gives us many examples of why that's valid. But when the Apostle Paul expresses this, we can take the same imagery that he gives us in verse 24 and apply it to this action plan approach that we need. He puts it like this. Do you not know that in a race, all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? 1 Corinthians 9, 24. And then listen to this. Run in such a way as to get the prize. So applying this to our goal life, then we see that Paul is dealing with a tenacity, a boldness. He's dealing with a, an approach that he says you too can have. Now let's think about three different ways that the Bible um, uses this term of boldness. Because in Paul's example here, he is expressing it for a particular reason. The, the wording, if you again in your Bible, look down at um, verse 24 and notice that he says, run in such a way as to get the prize. And the, the Greek expression there is really intriguing. The verb form has the built-in idea of overtaking the opponent. That is, of coming up behind and overtaking. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Well, there are many people who start the beginning of a new year and they feel like I'm already behind. And God's word, again, in a, in a, very, uh, a very encouraging way, 
can help you realize it doesn't matter how far behind you may feel. It doesn't matter how many times you feel like you have started a race, started on a goal, and gotten maybe thrown off track. God's grace and power is there for you that you can overtake. Yes, you. You can run in such a way that you overtake. Well, I want to ask you to think about it in light of then this characteristic of boldness. And there are three ways that we might think about boldness as a child of God. The first one is that the Bible speaks of boldness as an openness or a free-flowing capacity to speak and express yourself. Well, again, apart from Christ, we're left only with human resources. But in Jesus Christ, there's a different dynamic. Here's one way that we might see it very quickly. If you want to jot this down, we won't have time to turn there. But in Acts chapter 4, verse 13, there is a confrontation that occurs when Peter and John and fellow disciples are proclaiming the risen Lord in the streets of Jerusalem. And at the conclusion of one of their messages, Peter and John proclaim that um, when you look at the life of Jesus, the risen Lord, you're seeing God's cornerstone, and he is the cornerstone that the builders rejected. And looking square in the eyes of the Sanhedrin, the religious leaders of Israel, they say, you have rejected the cornerstone that God the Father has made the head of the building. For salvation is found in no other name under heaven by which men can be saved, but through the Lord Jesus. Now, that striking and uh, very, uh, very powerful statement about the cornerstone rattled the cage of the religious hierarchy of Jerusalem, and they were in a tense dilemma. What can we do with these men? They even asked that question in the text. What can we do about these men? The reason they were in such a dilemma is that Acts 4.13 says, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were unschooled ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. <laughs> Why, how could untrained, non-academic, they, they didn't have the master's degree, they didn't have the sheepskin, they didn't have the credentials that uh, Sanhedrin would respect, but they said, what has just happened before us? Free-flowing expression from hearts that were courageously confronting the most august and revered hierarchy of their entire nation and culture. And they were saying, the risen Lord himself in person empowers this truth. Just like we saw in Hebrews 4.12, it was the word of God living and active, and it freed them up to be bold. It freed them up from their inhibitions. This applies, friends, to people who say, I run across articles sometimes in journals that talk about people who are shy, and they describe it as, um, this is a special problem that many of us have, and you can't understand us unless you're a shy person. And I always nod and think, I, that's true, I can't understand it because I'm not shy. But, but then I think, you know, the Bible addresses that issue, though, so beautifully when it shows us 
that the Holy Spirit works with all of our personalities. And the beauty of the working of the Holy Spirit in our lives is that shy or extrovert, introvert, extrovert, whatever category you're in, just like Peter and John, it has nothing to do with how schooled you've been, what your credentials are. If the Word of God is actively working in your life, you're going to have a freedom to express yourself. Sure, the personalities are different, but you're going to have a free-flowing expression. Now, I think it's really great to, to get a handle on just how beautiful this is and how often the Bible speaks of this. In Proverbs 28, the Bible says that a wicked person may flee even when no one is pursuing. <laughs> it's uh, kind of a picture of paranoia in Proverbs 28.1, isn't it? The wicked flee when no one pursues. But the righteous, say it with me, are as bold as a lion. Would you say it with me? The righteous are as bold as a lion. Now, this has nothing to do with personality. There's a boldness, a tenacity, a, a freedom of expression that can come in the heart of the shyest person. Just as there is a quietness and a calmness that can come in the life of the loudest person. Can I hear an amen? We need both. We need the Holy Spirit's governing on both ends of the personality spectrum, don't we? We need God's grace to be quiet and calm if we're typically an outspoken person. The point I'm getting at is deeper than personality, obviously. The point I'm getting at is whatever you are, whether you're phlegmatic, you're sanguine, you're melancholy, you're choleric, or you're some combination of those, or, or you're a type A or a type B, you know, all these models of how people analyze personalities. But the Bible shows us that there's a characteristic that we can count on, and that is a boldness, not boldness here is not brashness, it's not an abrasive personality. The boldness of the Bible is not a rude person. The boldness of the Bible is not being brash or bravado, machismo. No, the, the, the boldness of the Bible is an inner conviction that comes where you're freed up to truly express the real person that you are. You come to realize that because of the risen Lord and his glorious power in your life, you can be you. You can be true to you. You can be free in expressing yourself. You can get to that point where you understand why our faith being revitalized is a part of boldness. Our faith being revitalized is a key to having realistic goals that we set and move forward in. And this leads us to the second way we can see boldness in the Bible. Boldness in the Bible is not only that, that free expression, that outspokenness, that uh, unchained heart and personality. That's, that's powerful. But also, huh, the Bible talks about a kind of boldness that's a continuing confidence. It's continuing in a track you've started on. Think back to Paul's image of the race. Many run in the race, but only one receives the prize. Like the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City when the, when the great um, runner from Kenya had come to compete in the games. And at the end of the day, when, when the winner had been declared, the runners had come in, 
The uh, companion teams had come alongside them. Way off in the distance was a little figure against the sunset, was a figure of a runner who kept running and kept running. Everyone else was off the track by the point that he finally got to the finish. And people began to ask him, why did you, after you knew that you knew you wouldn't get all the way, you knew that the race had been run, and they asked this Kenyan runner, and when he got to the end at that ribbon, he said, I didn't travel all the way from Kenya, East Africa, to not finish this race. That kind of tenacity is the kind of thing Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians 9. I will persevere. I will push on because it's more than just me getting recognition. In his case, it was destiny. He moved toward that goal with tenacity and boldness. Continuing, friends, isn't it true? Continuing sometimes is harder than starting. <laughs> you know, that could be true in many parts of life. I loved this job for three and a half years. I love it no more, <laughs> right? Or I, I was, uh, you know, people have that uh, frustration in many aspects of life. They started good, but they're now beginning to flag. And here's a beautiful thing about boldness that we can see is that if we can get some perspective on this, we can understand that, that it is faith in the cross of Christ that enables us to continue. Would you open your Bible to Acts chapter 14? I'd like you to see this, this place in Acts 14 because it, it gives us a, a good model for understanding this. In Acts chapter 14 and verse, beginning at verse 21, uh, there's a great model for this continuing. Acts 14, 21 says they preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. And then they returned to three cities there in the Galatian region, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch, and their purpose of returning, if you see it in your Bible in Acts 14, 22, their purpose was to strengthen the disciples and encourage them to continue. Would you say the word continue? Say it louder. Say it with zest. Continue, it says, the NIV translation puts it, they continued, they reminded them to remain true to the faith. Would you shout continue? Continue. Now continuing takes boldness. It's a certain kind of boldness. It says, yeah, I'm tired. Yeah, I've lost heart in some ways. Yes, I've had some disappointments. But the goal of God in my life in this area is giving me an opportunity to test and deepen my understanding of what the cross of Christ has done for me. The cross of Christ is the ultimate example of continuing against the odds. Hebrews 12.3 uses the cross as an example of why this is important. And it says, how many of you have resisted the temptations of sin to the point of bleeding? Note that in Hebrews 12, 3 and 4 sometimes. The Bible asks you this question. How many times have you, has continuing, standing strong, remaining true, how many times has it, has it burst a blood vessel in your body? <laughs> how many times have you bled over this? <laughs> well, let's see, it's comparing it to Christ, who's the finisher of our faith, and it's calling us to look unto Jesus as we persevere 
in the race. So here again, boldness is a free-flowing expression that brings out the person, the real giftedness and the God-given potential that's in your life, but it is also a power to keep moving, a continuous confidence, a security in the love of God that guards you and guides you and provides for you. One uh, more formal church than ours up in New Jersey um, in the Episcopal tradition had a neat uh, way of taking their teenagers through confirmation. They went through confirmation classes, and at the conclusion, there was a place where they would always have some kind of presentation to the congregation of, the, of those receiving confirmation. And um, one of these times, they chose the section of Romans 8 that celebrates the fact who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, shall dis- distress, persecution, famine, peril, nakedness, or the sword? No, and all these things were more than conquerors. And all of the kids from confirmation were to stand and to quote part of that passage. And the question would be asked to them, uh, Danny, who shall separate you from the love of God? And Danny would answer, no one can separate me from the love of God, neither tribulation nor persecution nor famine nor nakedness nor peril, the sword, for I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angel nor principality. And he would go through the whole quote. And they went down the line of the individuals on the stage. Everybody got increasingly tense because the last young lady in the line, a girl named Patricia, was a Down syndrome and could not hardly get out a full sentence. People watched as they went down the line. And when they came to Patricia, the question was asked, Patricia, who shall separate, what shall separate you from the love of God? And she said, nothing. And that is the answer. Nothing is the answer. And that is why you can persevere. Because nothing, nothing, just as Patricia knew, and the the, the congregation often expressed their gratitude that Patricia stayed on that stage so that she could say, would you say with me, nothing, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so when we think of it this way, then we can understand as as we run this race that there will be times even when you're in the fog, even when it's not clear which way you're to go, there will be times that you're going to need to know nothing can separate you from God's love and nothing can prevent you from fulfilling your mission. Run, be bold, let the word of God do its mighty work in your heart because God's word tells us that this kind of boldness, this kind of tenacity is what Paul was talking about when he said, run in such a way that you overtake the opponent, run in such a way that you will reach the goal. This is God's gift to you. Let's pray together now, and I'm so grateful that Bethany and Anthony can come and bring a song for us in kind of reflecting and giving thanks to God together. Would you pray with us as we thank the Lord for the way the Word of God can revitalize your faith to make you bold 
in this season of your soul. Father, together we thank you that this is a time to step aside from the things that bring us stress and devote some time, some quality time, to simply asking you to bring that clarity of focus for us for recalibrating, resetting, recharting that course. In Jesus' name, amen.